I'm David Marcus, host of Drinks with the Deal. And today our guest is John Olson, a partner at Gunderson Detmer in San Francisco. John, thanks for joining us. David, thanks so much for having me. Today, we're going to talk about several things. First of all, your background, how you came to be a, an M&A lawyer. Secondly, the intersection of the tech sector and SPACs, the kinds of tech companies that find a merger with a SPAC particularly attractive, the challenges that those transactions can pose and the opportunities they present for certain classes of tech companies. And then finally, since you're in San Francisco, your thoughts on what the tech community in the Bay Area may look like when the pandemic starts to abate. So with that, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, how you came to practice at Gunderson. Thanks, David. So I think that, you know, the story for me professionally starts in San Francisco around the end of dot-com 1.0, where I was out here 1999 to 2001, and I was working at a couple of different startups as a software quality assurance engineer. And tell us a little bit about that experience, how it compares to San Francisco now. I mean, it, it was a wild time. You know, I was the lowest of the low on the totem pole on the engineering side. And of course, I don't have an engineering background. So it was very much a part of the stake it till you make it ethos of the, of the era. Um, and luckily for me, I showed up way too late to have any sort of delusions that I was going to become an overnight dot-com millionaire. But it was very fun to see and uh, frankly also sobering to see what happened when there was a lot of exuberance and a lot of dreams that ended up not coming to fruition. And so you then left the Valley to go to grad school at Hopkins. I did. I did. Uh, you know, my last job at a startup, I had planned to leave and go to graduate school. And on my very last day, I tried to get folks to come out to drinks with me to celebrate me moving on and going to grad school. Uh, and that day, our startup folded. So I don't think folks were quite in the mood to celebrate my next milestone. <laughs> but it was a fitting end to that era uh, for me. And I ended up heading over to grad school in Baltimore. And it was a you know, terrific experience. I was planning on being a college professor in political science and spent a few years in that program. Ended up really being drawn more to the law, though, after spending a few years studying there and ended up at uh, Northwestern in Chicago for law school. And then you went to Cleary, New York to start your career. How did you gravitate toward m and I started in the general corporate practice at Cleary, and one of the things I really liked about Cleary is that it was very much a generalist practice. They very, very much encouraged folks to explore many different aspects of corporate practice. So I did a bunch of private equity work. I did a bunch of capital markets work on the equity and debt side. But overall, what really drew me to M&A was the negotiations. I really enjoyed helping different parties, frankly, different constituents among the, the different parties, 
to come to an agreement that worked for everyone a little bit more than the capital markets practice where it was much more disclosure driven and regulatory driven. And you saw M&A in, in two very different contexts, I, obviously a, a New York practice, and then you spent about three years at Cleary in Paris. Tell us about those two experiences and then how they contrast with being an M&A lawyer in San Francisco with a tech-focused practice. It's, it's, it's three very different practices, to be frank. In New York, the M&A practice that I was developing at the time was very focused on financial institutions with uh, large industrial companies and some private equity M&A. In Paris, the focus was, I think, very obviously going to be cross-border because the size of the French economy was such that really the, the most interesting deals were cross-border deals. Now, one of the most fascinating deals I worked on when I was in Paris involved something like 21 jurisdictions, mostly centered in North Africa and Egypt, but had elements in Russia and Italy and Vietnam. So it was one of those really uniquely cross-border experiences. And that was, I think, one of the you know kind of highlights of working in a place like Paris. And then at Gunderson, you tend to be much more on the entrepreneur startup VC side as opposed to the serial acquirer side. So talk a little bit about that and then what the appeal of a combination with a SPAC is to, to those kinds of clients. Absolutely. I think that we certainly at Gunderson have buy-side clients. But if you look at overall our practice as a firm, the majority of our deals are on the sell side. And frankly, we have more funded startup clients, I believe, than any other firm. And so what's very exciting about that is working with the entrepreneurs who are oftentimes creating a new market in whatever they're doing. So they're not trying to enter into a market that is mature, but very often creating something brand new. For example, markets like uh, telemedicine or markets like the new mobility revolution around electric vehicles and autonomous vehicles. David, for your question around SPACs is a very interesting one because obviously we've been going through a true, I believe, revolution in how the market views SPACs and how the, frankly, the technology companies view SPACs. And, you know, I don't think this is a surprise to anyone who's listening here that, you know, 2020 and, and now into 2021 has been the new era of the SPAC. The, what was, I think, one of the most interesting aspects of this, one of the most interesting developments is that uh, the marriage of this instrument, with uh, the SPAC, which has been around for decades, but marrying that with the VC-backed uh, you know, ecosystem companies, the emerging companies that are uh, developing new markets to enter into. And that has been a very interesting marriage. And I think that there is, are certain aspects of the SPAC that make it particularly attractive to companies that are moving into these emerging markets. And, and so are there particular 
kinds of companies for which a, a SPAC is especially appealing? Because I obviously tech companies have been able to, to raise money by going public for many, many years. There are a, an enormous array of capital providers out there, uh, certainly far, far more than there were 20 years ago. So when is the SPAC a particularly attractive vehicle for a, a tech company to raise money and go public? I think the, the the first question for these companies is typically whether or not they want to be a public company. So obviously, the the private markets have for a very long time been very robust and open to funding, um, you know, interesting businesses for a very long time. Uh, you know, uh, pre IPO. But once the uh, company has decided that it wants to go public. For example, they're looking for liquidity for their employees and their investors, or they're looking to be able to have funding mechanisms uh, in the capital markets, in the public capital markets going forward that you know perhaps might be uh, less expensive or less dilutive than in the private markets. So once a company has decided that it w- would like to access the public market, the question is whether or not to do it via a traditional IPO or via SPAC. And... I think there has been a sense in the VC community in particular, as well as in the entrepreneur community, that the traditional IPO market has not really served it well. There have been, I think, a few different critiques. Some of those critiques have been voiced around the costs um, associated with IPOs, with the traditional IPOs, uh, and whether or not the huge price pops that you sometimes see in tech IPOs is well serving the investors and the entrepreneurs. But I I think the other thing that a lot of folks, I think, miss is that the traditional IPO path is not necessarily open to all types of companies. The gatekeepers of the IPO, um, which are really, frankly, the, uh, the underwriters and the larger institutional investors that are oftentimes talking to the underwriters and letting them know what types of companies they're looking for, the criteria that they look for, that they have traditionally looked for, has not been welcoming necessarily to all types of companies that might otherwise want to access the public markets. And that criteria has shifted over time. It used to be that there was a focus on profits. And obviously that, you know, with larger companies like Uber, for example, where it hasn't really been a focus on profits, it was a focus more on revenue. But there are still plenty of companies right now that are looking at a a tremendous growth trajectory and possibilities where they might not have the revenue today that would otherwise satisfy those criteria that the IPO gatekeepers have in mind. So with with all of the options emerging companies have for gaining liquidity, uh, an initial public offering, an array of capital providers in the private markets, why might a company opt to go public via combining with a SPAC? I I think, David, that for most companies, the question, the first question is, 
you know, whether or not they want to be public or whether or not they want to stay private. So obviously, the private markets have been uh, very robust over the past 20 years in particular. They've been growing tremendously. And many companies have decided that it's great to stay private for a very long time. But eventually, I think there is still the view that being a public company is the end game or the end state that many of these, you know, companies want to achieve. That could be very, for very different reasons, but oftentimes it's to access liquidity for investors, for current employees or, and former employees, frankly, and for the entrepreneurs. There could be other reasons, for example, to be able to access ongoing funding in the capital markets on the equity side or to make debt financing easier as well in in the future. But whatever path a company takes to make the decision that going public is right for them, I think at that point, the question is, is the SPAC route the, the better route or is the IPO route the better route? And so why might a company choose a SPAC or an IPO? And are there certain kinds of companies for which a transaction with a a SPAC is particularly appealing? I think that to to understand the what I would call the SPAC mania of 2020 and, and into 2021, you do have to look at the types of companies that have embraced the SPAC and then try to understand you know, why that is. And I think that there have been certain industries, that, in, in particularly within tech, that have found the SPAC route to be particularly appealing. One uh, I might point to is the larger umbrella of mobility. And here I, I'm talking about electric vehicles and all of the various companies that surround that nascent market, as well as other nascent markets such as telemedicine. So these are companies that are addressing markets that are not really huge revenue generators today or certainly are not the revenue possibilities uh, and the markets today are dwarfed by the potential in the future. And one of the things that's very interesting about the SPAC is it does, I think, two things that allow for companies that are focused on a market that is, is really just coming into being and has a lot of potential for the future. One is that you don't have to ask permission from the so-called gatekeepers of the IPO process, the underwriters and the anchor institutional investors that work with underwriters on and invest in many IPOs. And so a company can make the choice to, to do a SPAC with, without essentially having to convince the underwriters that uh, this is a business that is IPOable, for lack of a better word. In part, in the DSPAC transaction, the operating company has more flexibility to put forward its projected revenues and earnings than it would in a standard IPO, correct? Absolutely. That, that is probably one of the, from a technical perspective, one of the key advantages for companies like this to embrace this background because they can then tell their story of what they think the world will look like and what they think their markets will look like uh, in the future 
rather than marketing the deal based upon their historical performance. And so how do you see the SPAC market evolving? I, I, I mean, do you think that the level of activity in SPAC IPOs and, and then in DSPAC transactions is sustainable? And if not, what kind of level do you think it'll settle out at? And how do you think these vehicles will be used, say, two to four years from now? That's certainly the million dollar or perhaps the billion dollar question. I think that the level of activity that we're seeing in SPACs is unsustainable. And certainly as an amateur here and as a practitioner, it seems to me that the fact that more SPAC IPOs have been completed and more money has been raised in January then I believe was raised in all of 2018 and perhaps all of 2019. But there has been a tremendous craze for SPACs. And looking forward, if you think about it as a market where there had traditionally been a modest supply of SPACs and a modest supply of companies that were interested in doing SPACs, Going forward, we have seen a explosion in the number on both on the supply and on the demand side. But there's going to be a limit on the demand for, for doing DSPAC. There's going to be a limit of companies that can realistically do a transaction that would make sense for them to access the capital markets via SPAC. So my prediction is that it will level out. The level of SPAC activity that we'll see in two to four years it is, seems likely to be lower than it is today, but significantly higher than it was a few years ago. Now, that, that's just from the sense that SPACs are filling a need for these private companies. Uh, and I think and there will continue to be some level of need there. I will put one major caveat to that, which is that SPACs are a relatively old instrument and they've had a varied history behind them. And so it is also possible that there will be some sort of scandal or some sort of press around a, a SPAC or two that don't go well. And because of that, uh, perhaps the market in general will sour on SPACs uh, due to you know reputational concerns. But I don't think that's going to happen this time. It certainly has happened in the past with SPACs. Seems to me that there have been enough high quality SPACs, enough who have really sterling reputations, who have gotten into this area of the capital markets, and so it does feel like it's here to stay. And for the companies, it would seem that the big difference is the liquidity the SPAC provides to employees, major shareholders, because when you look at the investors in the pipes that are done with many SPACs, those, many of those investors have for a long time invested in private companies and been willing to hold stakes that have far less liquidity than a stake in a public company would have. That's absolutely true. And I think it's going to be interesting to see whether or not certain types of investors might start thinking about getting into these pipes and perhaps holding public securities. 
So it will be interesting to see if investors that have been looking into late stage financings and growth equity will pile into the market as well. And then switching gears a little bit, as we've discussed, you saw San Francisco in the late 90s, you know, the, the extraordinary, it turned out, bubble, but one that it turned out, you know, presaged almost an entire economy. How do you think the city and the tech sector will look, say, in a year when, when hopefully the pandemic is behind us, given the just enormous pressures there are in that region in terms of demand for everything, demand for office space, demand for housing, the commutes that that many people endure? It's a very interesting time to be here in the Bay Area because there seems to be a sense among some commentators that the Bay Area is old news and that uh, the San Francisco and Silicon Valley-based innovation economy is going to uh, abandon this region in favor of perhaps sunnier climes. Texas has certainly been one area, but, but there's certainly been a lot of other regions as well. And from my perspective, I certainly don't think that the other regions that that get attention like Austin and other parts of Texas, I don't think that those are bad bets. We're going to see a lot of innovation from areas that are outside of Silicon Valley and outside of the San Francisco Bay Area. That said, this region, this economy, it does not seem, from my perspective, to be taking its foot off the gas in terms of innovation. If you look at the types of companies that are moving out of here uh, and out of this region, certainly some of them are the startups and nascent companies of the future. But a lot of the companies that have been announcing moves seem to be a little bit more of what I would call the legacy technology companies, the HPs and the Oracles of the world, terrific companies, but more mature in more mature markets. And I think that that actually might be a good thing for this region and for this economy, because if those jobs and, and those companies are moving out, perhaps that will relieve some of the pressures, David, you alluded to, around housing costs, around commute hours, around all the things that make living and working in the San Francisco Bay Area sometimes a challenge. Ultimately speaking, this is... It's such an exciting area of the country. It's such an exciting place to be working. The ideas of the engineers, the scientists, the energy in this region, I think is unparalleled, has been unparalleled, and I believe will continue to be so. Uh, John, thank you. Uh, thank you for that. And thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, David. It's been terrific. For Drinks with a Deal, I'm David Marcus.